Good morning, Bethel. So we are now in the month of May, and that means ideally it's going to start getting warmer outside. Yeah, I don't know about you. Uh, one thing I like to do when it uh, starts to get warmer uh, outside is to go hiking. Um, when the weather cooperates, my family and I love to do that. Um, now, my wife and I, we have three young kiddos. So when we do get out in the woods, we're intentional about helping them uh, and ourselves hike safely. Depending on the situation, we might have a few uh, different things in mind. We might mention instructions kind of like this. Pay attention and make sure you know what's under your feet. You don't want to trip on a tree root or turn your ankle on a rock or step on a critter that might bite you. Stay on the path. Now, Sometimes my family, we like to ignore that one, especially if there's a vine or something that we can swing from because we're crazy like that. Um, or like if there's a rock that we could take a family picture on, but by and large, we stay on the trail and we don't do something that's going to potentially uh, put us off of the path or near something like a snake or poison ivy or something that wouldn't be on the trail otherwise. And speaking of poison ivy, another one is to steer clear of certain kinds of plants. Leaves of three, let it be, so they say. You don't want to be on the receiving end of poison ivy. I don't know about you, but I have been on the receiving end, and it is no fun. Another is uh, pay attention to the signs that are in place. So we don't want to get off on the wrong trail by following the wrong sign. We want to keep in mind those directional signs. Um, but also, there's a place near where my family likes to hike, and there's a sign that mentions uh, a nearby snake sanctuary. I don't know, maybe I haven't looked at it close enough, but I just see that and I think, well, yeah, I definitely don't want to go that way. I don't know why anybody would. So we certainly want to avoid that one. And then finally, and this is one that my wife uh, directed me toward yesterday, she mentioned to me, um, is this a spider or a tick? Either way, your mom doesn't want to see it. We don't want you to get bitten, so leave it where it is. So our passage this morning, Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, begins with the command, look carefully then how you walk. Paul's already mentioned his readers walk or their way of living several times in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, he describes their walk before God saved them. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what their walk was like. But God saved them. They were spiritually dead, but God made them alive in Christ. And this didn't happen by their own doing, through their own works. It was by grace, through faith, as a gift. And now that they have been saved, good works should follow as a result. So Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So using those two verses, we could 
almost summarize Paul's teaching on walking in Ephesians like this. The saints in Ephesus once walked in trespasses and sins. Now, saved by God's grace, they are to walk in the good works God prepared, before, God prepared for them beforehand. Paul mentions this, and he further elaborates on it later in Ephesians. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In chapter 4, verse 17, he tells them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And chapter 5, verse 2, he commands them to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, he says, Therefore, do not become partners with them, that is, the sons of disobedience, he mentions in chapter 5, verse 6, those who practice unrepentant sexual immorality and covetousness. Do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And now, in Ephesians 5, verse 15, and this is the last time that Paul is going to mention walk in this letter, he says, look carefully then how you walk. The idea here is to pay close attention to the way that you live, to go about the Christian life with thoughtfulness, care, and intentionality. Our aim as Christians involves loving God and neighbor, bringing God glory with all of our lives, growing in Christ-likeness and holiness, building up our brothers and sisters in Christ, leading other people to Jesus, and more. Now, these things don't happen by accident. You will not fall backwards into holiness. It won't happen. It requires care and attention with the Spirit's help. So, just as my family needs to pay close attention to how we hike, we as Christians need to be intentional and thoughtful about how we live our lives. Paul unpacks this idea in uh, these verses this morning, Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, and he does so through three contrasts. The first one is in verse 15, where he says, to look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The second is verse 17, where he says, to not be foolish, but understand what the will, or understand the Lord's will. And the third is in verse 18, where he says, to not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Three contrasts. These are all related in a sense, but we're, we will explore them individually today through three points. They'll be point one, walk wisely, two, understand the Lord's will, and three, be filled with the Spirit. So first, uh, let's look at that first point, walk wisely, verses 15 to 16. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The saints in Ephesus are to ensure that they walk wisely. Now, wisdom in the Bible isn't merely knowledge of facts. It's putting into practice what you know to be true. So here, just in Ephesians, Paul has taught some amazing things 
to these believers. In chapter 1, verse 4, he's told them that God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy and blameless before him. In chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, he mentions his prayer that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him so that they may better know the hope to which he has called them, their certain future in Christ, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward them, power that he worked when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, Paul explained that even when they were dead in their sin, God, by grace through faith, made them alive together with Christ and raised them up with him and seated them with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, Paul has highlighted the mystery of God's will to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, A day is coming when Jesus will finally, forever, deal with his enemies and usher in peace and unity under his rule and reign. Now, that day hasn't fully arrived yet, but it is already here in part, and you can see it in the church. Jew and Gentile or non-Jewish believers alike have been reconciled to God and each other through the cross of Christ. Where there once was hostility, now there's peace with God and with one another. We are all members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's from Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22. Paul's explained these things to these believers in this letter, especially in the first half. Now, why take time to rehearse some of those? Why rehearse those things? Well, it's because the point, or they point to what is true of and what is in store for these believers and for you and me, if we're in Christ, and this knowledge is meant to be lived out. So if we're going to live wisely, we put into practice what we know, and we can look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, especially those first three chapters, and glean this information about what God has done and what he is going to do for us in Christ. He's going to unite all things in Christ. That is sure to happen. And it involves the salvation of Jew and Gentile. It's already broken in. It will be fully ushered in one day in the future when Jesus returns. But we are not, we're not there yet, and so we need to be intentional to live the right way. Now, what does that look like? Well, again, looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I think we can find some examples. So in Ephesians 4 and 5, uh, here, here are some things that I think that we can say. In chapter 4, verse 2, drawing from that, We should walk with humility. Why? Because it's only by God's grace that we've been saved from our sin. Humility, looking back on Ephesians 2, what God has done for us. We should show patience toward others. Why? Because God has been infinitely patient with us. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? because God has reconciled all believers to himself and to each other through the cross of Christ. And Jesus will one day usher in a reign of perfect peace and unity. 
We should speak the truth to each other. Why? Because we are members of one another. We should work diligently because we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. We should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. We should be imitators of God as beloved children. We should walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We shouldn't partner with those who practice sexual immorality and covetousness because at one time we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. What is true should drive our practice. We should walk in wisdom in that way. What we know to be true of God, of others, and of ourselves, our past, our present, our future, should drastically impact our behavior or our walk here and now. We should, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Sometime around the birth of my first child, I remember someone telling me that um, with kids, and you may have heard this saying before, um, that with kids, the days are long and the years are short. Uh, I've found that to be true. There have been long days and even short seasons that seem to last a while. At times, if I'm honest, I've even wished some of them away, like the diaper changing and potty training phases. Almost without warning, it's like you look up and you just wonder where the time went. One minute, my son's a few months old and my wife and I are struggling to get him to drink a bottle because he's dealing with acid reflux. And it's like just the next. He is almost eight years old and he has two sisters, uh, one six and the other four. It's like, where in the world did that time go? And, I, and I'm sure I, I will feel that to greater degrees as I get older. I think, I think most of us feel this in our different stages of life. Time flies. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many resources you have. It doesn't matter what is at your disposal. You cannot get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. But even though we know that that's true, I know that's true, you know that's true. We can be so prone to waste the time God gives us, can't we? I can. We live in this present evil age and we ourselves are prone to sin against God and others. And because this is true, because that's the case, we must, with the Holy Spirit's help, do what Paul says here, look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, and make the best use of the time we have. We know the kinds of good things God calls us to do. We just rehearsed a lot of them from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and that's only drawing from a couple of chapters. Uh, those things were mainly from chapters four and five. And we could add to those things our need to practice the spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible and praying, uh, we could add to those things our need to serve our family members and point them toward Jesus. 
we could add our need to care for the vulnerable and the marginalized in our, in our society, especially if in our church, if that's present, and we could go on and on. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never take a nap. It doesn't mean we should never go on a vacation. It doesn't mean we shouldn't watch a TV show or a, a, a game. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't get on social media. But it does mean that in the strength God gives us, we must intentionally and wisely use our time and look for and seize opportunities to do what brings God glory, what builds up the church, and what serves and helps other people. We have to be intentional about that. Maybe we could even echo this resolution of the famous theologian Jonathan Edwards. He said, resolved never to lose one moment of time but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. I think that would be uh, good to take up. We have a limited amount of time. Let's be sure that in the strength God gives us that we use it well, that we seize it, um, that we turn it for good. So we need to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We also... And this brings us to our second point. We must understand the Lord's will. So the first contrast in these verses is not as unwise, but as wise. The second is here in verse 17, and it's similar. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So last year, we had a discipleship class on guidance and the will of God. And the primary book that we used for that class was this one. It's called Just to Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will by Kevin DeYoung. And in that book, uh, he points out two sides to God's will. So there's God's will of decree, which DeYoung defines like this. This refers to what God has ordained. Everything that comes to pass is according to God's sovereign decree, and all that he decrees will come to pass. And then the other side of God's will is God's will of desire, which DeYoung explains like this. This refers to what God has commanded, what he desires from his creatures. I think those are right, hopefully helpful categories. And if we consider Ephesians, we've already seen both of them show up. So God's will of decree shows up twice in Ephesians 1, 9 to 12. So there, Paul first mentions in verses 9 to 10, the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And then second, in verse 11, he says, In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God's will of decree, his will that cannot be thwarted. His will of decree will happen. And this in Ephesians, um, Paul, uh, God's will to unite all things in Christ will ultimately 
happen. One day in the future, God will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. King Jesus will return. He will conquer his enemies and he will usher in his eternal reign of peace and the predestined people of God, everyone who turns away from their sins and trusts Jesus to save them and be their king, Jew and Gentile alike, will dwell with God forever and ever in his kingdom. That cannot be stopped. It will happen. God's will of desire in Ephesians shows up in the commands, uh, uh, some of which we've already discussed. So let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, chapter 4, verse 25. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, chapter 4, verse 29. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, chapter 4, verse 32. And even the verse we're looking at right now, Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. These commands express God's will of desire, what he wants from us, his people. That's important to point out, I think, because when Paul tells the saints in Ephesus to understand the Lord's will, he seems to primarily be calling on them to understand and wisely apply what he's already said, what they already know, what God has already revealed. They and we must live in light of God's will of decree and humbly obey God's will of desire, which if you think about it, it's very similar to the things that we've already talked about. It's very similar to point one, what it looks like to live wisely. We live out what we know to be true. God has revealed to us part of his will of decree. We don't know everything and we shouldn't seek to find that out. What God has revealed to us, he has revealed. We should take it to heart, his will of decree. We also need to take to heart his will of desire and seek to wisely live those things out in our daily lives. To do that well, we have to have discernment. We need to know God's word. We need God to give us hearts that desire to follow him in every circumstance. We need other people to help us along the way, but we also need discernment. Tim Challies, he defines discernment like this. He says, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. And he helpfully points out why this is necessary. He says this, many of the decisions we face in life are easily decided by looking to the Bible. We know that we must honor our marriage vows and not commit adultery. We know that we must obey those who govern us unless they compel us to disobey God. We know that we must attend a local church. Scripture is explicit in many areas, and yet there are other areas where the Bible has little explicit guidance. In these cases, we must proceed through sanctified wisdom, wisdom gained by studying the truth of God's word and discerning what is true from what is false. Where the Bible contains no explicit command or guidance, God gives us wisdom and discernment to choose what we will do. It is here that we must exercise discernment. God gives us the gifts of wisdom and discernment so we can make decisions that honor him. With our knowledge of the truth, we are equipped to make decisions that are consistent with his self-revelation. So understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's be sure to live in light of God's will of decree, 
of his purposes that are sure to be accomplished. Let's follow God's will of desire, humbly and joyfully doing what he commands. And for those situations where there isn't a specific command in the Bible, whatever it is, let's pray for wisdom and ask for discernment to rightly apply God's word and, and, and move forward in faith. So we must look carefully how we walk. We must walk wisely. We must understand what the will of the Lord is. And third, we must be filled with the Spirit. So this is verses 18 to 21. Now, Paul begins this section with another uh, final contrast. This is the third one. He says in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So while drunkenness leads to reckless behavior, debauchery, being filled with the Spirit leads to righteous actions that glorify God and serve others. But what exactly does Paul mean by be filled with the Spirit? Well, a couple of things I think we can say. First, it's important to point out that this is a passive command. So he doesn't say, fill yourself with the Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit. That means we're not the ones who do the filling. This is also in the present tense, meaning that we must continue to be filled with the Spirit. This isn't a one-time thing. We must go on being filled with the Spirit. Now, we can also say that whatever it means to be filled by the Spirit, and this, I think, is a really important qualification, Paul is not talking about the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the lives of believers. When God saves us, He gives us His Spirit, and His Spirit never leaves. This is stated negatively in the last half of Romans 8, 9. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Because that's true, it's also true that anyone who belongs to Jesus has the Spirit. He indwells us at the moment of salvation. And not only that, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13, when we hear the gospel and believe in Christ, we are, Paul says, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So when Paul says to be filled by the Spirit, he's not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit or the sealing of the Spirit. Instead, he's saying that we should continue being filled with, or some commentators say by, by the Spirit. So if we were to paint with a broad brush, I think this may mean something along the lines of allowing the Spirit to be at work in our hearts to make us more and more like Jesus. So in other words, if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, we must continue daily, moment by moment, cultivating in our hearts a yieldedness to the Spirit's filling, to the Spirit's work in us. We must not resist Him, but rather allow Him to change and direct and lead us. We must be filled 
with the Spirit. Now, what happens when we do that? Well, Paul mentions three things, three results of being filled with the Spirit. First, when we are filled by the Spirit, we sing to one another and to God. Paul says in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Notice the horizontal and the vertical dimensions that are present there. Vertically, we sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart. So when we are filled with the Spirit, the result is like song and melody in our hearts to God. But that's not it. Horizontally, we also address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Have you ever thought about that? When we come together on Sundays, we're singing to God. So when, when, we, when we sing, there is a, an individual um, thing that is happening. It is me and God. I am singing to God. God is working in my heart. It's happening hopefully for each one of us. But we are also singing to and instructing even each other. Mike Cosper talks about that in his book, and this, this is a great book. It's, it's called Rhythms of Grace, How the Church's Worship Tells the Story of the Gospel. He talks about this in his book, and at one point, he references Colossians 3.16, which in some ways is a, is a parallel to uh, verses 18 to 21 here, and he gives a great personal example of what that horizontal aspect of worship looks like. Now, before I read you uh, his comment, let me read you Colossians 3.16. So Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Incidentally, that may be a parallel phrase to be filled with the Spirit. Um, Daryl Bach points that out, points out that connection, and he says this, in Colossians 3, it is the content that is stressed, the word of Christ, while here, Ephesians 5, verse 18, it is the agent who makes the word effective, the Spirit himself. Colossians 3, it is the content that is stressed, the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. While here, Ephesians 5, 18, it is the agent who makes that word effective, the Spirit himself. Be filled with the Spirit. At any rate, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that's the background. That's the verse that he's drawing from. Now listen to Mike Cosper's comment on this. This is, I think, so good. He says, I remember one Sunday gathering when I came struggling with guilt. I sat in the back, brooding, feeling weak and unable to sing out. A stranger sat next to me, and during the services, we began singing how deep the Father's love for us. As we sang, my unknown companion belted out these lines. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Now, someone could have set me down and reminded me that my sin was paid for. And that might have spoken to me just as deeply. We'll never know for sure. But in that moment, it wasn't the words on the page, but the testimony of the voice next to me that spoke to my soul. And it wasn't a great voice either. Our singing is a testimony 
a declaration to those around us of who we are and whose we are. Harold Best says, a congregation is just as responsible to sing the gospel as the preachers are to preach it. These two tasks, singing and preaching, jointly undertaken to their fullest, then reduce themselves to one common act. It's an expression of unity for us to join in one voice and declare to one another that we're on the same page. We're united around the same things. One gospel, one church, one faith, one voice, one song. That's really good. Um, that is the work that we're about. When we gather on Sundays, like singing is not inconsequential. We are, yes, worshiping me and God, but we are also addressing one another. And as this happens, as we are addressing God and or making melody in our hearts to the Lord and addressing one another, we're expressing uh, the gospel. God has united us together in Christ. We are one people. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds, but what we have in common is Jesus, and we celebrate that on Sunday. That's why we sing. So when we are filled by the Spirit, we sing to one another and to God. Now second, when we are filled by the Spirit, we give thanks to God. Paul says in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that phrase, giving thanks always and for everything, might, um, it, it might catch some of you. Um, does Paul really mean we give thanks for everything? Well, what about, what about sin? You know, what about death? Do we thank God for these things? Well, no, I don't think that's what Paul means. We should repent of our sin. We should lament over sin and its effects. We should exhort others to turn away from their sin. And we should look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and finally forever puts sin away. But we can, though, here in the present, praise God because he is a God that even uses what is meant for evil for good purposes in the life of his people. That's the kind of God that we serve. Now, if you're a Christian, you have all the reason in the world to be thankful. You and I were once dead in our sin. We were without hope and without God. But God, who loves us, saved us by grace through faith in Jesus. He reconciled us to himself and he's reconciled us to each other, to other believers. He has brought us into a family of faith and given us a seat at the table. We know him as father. We know Jesus as brother. We have the spirit as helper. This is a gift. It's not our own doing. And not only that, God is continually at work in us by the power of his spirit. He's making us more and more like Jesus. And one day at the return of Jesus, he will finish the good work that he has begun. He will complete it. We will be made fully forever like Christ, never to sin or die again. May we never grow dull to that. If you've been following Jesus, uh, especially for a long time, I'm probably not saying anything that's new to you, but may we never grow dull to these truths. God has done amazing things for us. May we always be thrilled by it and ready to share it with other people. May we be full of thankfulness 
for what God has done and what he is doing and what he will do. Now, if you're with us today and if you're not a Christian, you can get in on this. You can get in on this today. Don't wait. Don't try to clean up your act. Turn away from your sin and your rebellion against God. Come to him as you are and trust Jesus to save you and be your king. Believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, that he rose from the dead for you, and commit to follow him with all your heart. Don't try to be accepted on the basis of anything that you've done. That will only ensure that you aren't accepted. Come only with a repentant heart, asking for the grace that God provides, trusting Jesus to save you. He will save you here and now this morning. If you want to learn more about what that means, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, about what it means to become a Christian, come talk to me after, after the service. I would love to, to talk to you. So when we are filled by the Spirit, we sing to one another and to God. We give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the third uh, result. When we are filled by the Spirit, we submit to one another. So Paul says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there are different opinions on what this means here in verse 21. I think essentially it can be boiled down to, to two things, two options. Paul could be mentioning submission as a bridge to the household codes he's going to unpack next in Ephesians. So if that's the case, he mentions submission as a result of being filled with the Spirit, and then he's going to explain what that looks like in various contexts, like marriage and parenting and work. So according to that view, Paul does not have a type of mutual submission in mind. Rather, it's submission as a heading, a result of being filled by the Spirit, further explained in the context that he's going to turn to next. The other option um, is that Paul could be focusing on mutual submission in the context of the church. Now, if that is the case, let's be clear, Paul is not negating what he's getting ready to say about submission and roles in the context of marriage, parenting, and work. So even if he is talking about mutual submission, it's not negating what he's getting ready to say. But if this is true, he's highlighting how being filled with the Spirit results in brothers and sisters in the church having an others-oriented, service-focused, lay-down-my-life-for-you kind of ethic. So John Calvin expresses that view well. Here's what he says. God has bound us so strong to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community. It is highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to each other in their turn. Now, it seems to me that there's probably a better case for the first view that Paul mentions submission as a result of being filled with the Spirit and then explains in context what that looks like. But I think certainly in some sense, we can say that what John Calvin describes should characterize us as the church. So as Jesus loved and humbly served us, laying down his life for us on the cross, we should love one another, serve one another, 
and humbly lay down our lives for one another too. So we should be characterized by that kind of others-oriented attitude. Now, all that said, let's bring all this together. We must watch our step. We need to carefully consider how we go about the Christian life. We need to walk wisely, making the best use of the time. We need to understand the Lord's will, which again is primarily the things that he has revealed to us in his word, his will of decree, his will of desire. And we need to be filled with or by the spirit, which when that happens, it will result in singing to God and each other. It will result in thanksgiving to God and it will result in submission to one another, whether that's a kind of mutual deference in the church later to be fleshed out in the household codes, or rather that is a heading, so not mutual submission, but heading to be fleshed out in the household codes. We are to be submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we do this, we must remember what God has done for us and what he is doing for us and what he will do for us. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for sinners and he raised him from the dead on the third day. By grace through faith in Christ, he has saved us and reconciled us to himself and to each other. And one day in the future, he will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Our king is coming back. And when he does, he will finally forever conquer his enemies, usher in his eternal reign of peace and dwell forever with us. So in a moment, we're going to reflect on what Jesus has done as we take the Lord's Supper together. We do this on the first Sunday of the month. If you are a baptized believer in Jesus, if you're following Christ and trusting him alone for salvation, we welcome you to participate in that with us. If you're not a Christian, um, please hold off on participating in the supper today. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering what it is that we have embraced, that Jesus has died for us on the cross, that he, that he shed his blood for us, paid for our sins, gave himself up for us. And so if you're not a Christian, if you haven't embraced Jesus, please don't partake in that today. Instead, I would invite you again, come and talk to me when the service is over. I would love to talk to you more about Jesus, what it means to follow him, get to know you a little bit. So for now, let's pray, and then we'll take a few moments for reflection, and then um, we will partake together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in it, for showing us what you're like, for who you are and what you have done. We praise you for Jesus, uh, that he lived a perfect life of obedience to you, died a sacrificial, sacrificial death on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead on the third day. And Lord, we thank you, we rejoice that you have uh, saved us, that you have by grace through faith brought us into the family of faith. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive together 
in Christ. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for what you are doing, that you are saving men and women, boys and girls all across the globe, all um, anticipating the moment when Jesus will return and all things will be united in him. We will dwell with him, um, uh, Jew and Gentile alike, Uh, All those who have trusted in him will be with him. Lord, thank you for this great plan that you have revealed and that you are working out, saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Thank you for making us a part of that. And Lord, I ask that you would help us as your people who have been brought into the family of faith, help us, Lord, to follow obediently these verses here. Lord, please, we need your help to Look carefully how we walk. Help us to be intentional about uh, the Christian life, um, the walk that you have given us um, through faith in Jesus. Lord, we need your help uh, to do this. We need your help to walk as wise, not unwise, and make the best use of the time. Lord, we need your help to understand and apply your will. Lord, give us grace for that. And Lord, we we want you to fill us in greater and greater ways daily with the Spirit. We don't want to try to, to do this alone. We can't. We need you. We ask for your help and the empowerment of the Spirit to change us and make us more and more like Jesus. Please do it, Lord. Do it for our eternal good. Lord, do it for uh, your glory and do it for um, the name of Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.